Our text tonight is in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And uh, to look at this whole matter of what it is to be redeemed and redemption. And uh, redeemed is a wonderful Bible word. And uh, sometimes we can talk about being saved, but we don't necessarily speak enough of the fact that we have been redeemed if we are believers. Jesus is Savior and he is Redeemer. We speak of salvation. We should also speak of redemption. We sang earlier, didn't we? In his highest work, redemption. See his glory in a blaze. One writer says, Great was the work of creation, but greater still the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem us than to make us. In the one there was but the speaking of the word, in the other there was the shedding of blood. The creation was but the work of God's fingers. Redemption is the work of his arm. And when we think about the Lord Jesus and why he came, he was very clear. He said in Mark 10, verse 45, we read it this morning, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to give his life to uh, redeem, to buy back his people, to ransom them. And so this is what we need to explore this evening. Salvation is a word which embraces the, the whole work, whereas redemption is looking specifically at the cost, the price paid, the means by which our salvation, if we are believers tonight, has been accomplished. And if we are the Lord's tonight, if we have trusted Christ, we were bought with a price. And God himself sending his son to be our ransom, to stand in our place, to be our substitute, to purchase our deliverance. And as Peter has been looking in this passage at the responsibilities of the believer, he then goes back again to the wonder of what we have been given in the Lord Jesus. And his, his heart is just bursting and overflowing with the fact that we have been redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That was the cost. And that's what we should rejoice and be so thankful for. But I want to set the context because it is clear that as Peter writes these words under the inspiration of the Spirit, he is also thinking much on a lot of the imagery of the Old Testament. And so if you will, turn back to Exodus 12, which is where we read together earlier on, and just to consider this whole matter of the Passover lamb. And uh, that'll help us understand really some of the things that Peter mentions in our text. And uh, Exodus 12, we mentioned when we read it, is the institution of the Passover. And so in verses 1 to 4, you see the Lord telling Moses and Aaron how there is to be this particular remembrance, this particular meal, this particular act which is to take place. And so we read, on the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. And so for this Passover, a lamb would need to be sacrificed and you would make that decision uh, as to whether you would have one for your household or whether it would be shared with neighbours, depending on how many were involved. 
and how much of the lamb was needed to feed the people and whether you should then share that with your neighbor. And then in verses 5 to 6, you have the detail about the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now notice that this lamb would be kept with the family, with the household, and would become very precious to that household, no doubt. They would have it with them. It would be around them. And uh, there, as they cared for it and tended to it at this time, and, and grew precious to them, and then they would have to kill it. Now, we're entering this lovely time of spring, and I don't know if you've ever seen little lambs, but you can understand the beauty and joy that will come to a family who would look after one for a period of time, and then that lamb would be their sacrifice. And then in verse 7 onwards, instruction is given that the blood of the lamb would be put on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they were. And the lamb was to be roasted. They would eat their flesh with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and nothing was to be left. And that was part of the reason why uh, families would often join together. Anything that was left over had to be burnt with fire. And it's also interesting to note that they were to dress ready to depart. So they were to eat in haste. The Lord declared that he would go through the land of Egypt and then he would bring this terrible plague and strike down the firstborn. And then in verses 13 to 14, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So you see the importance of the lamb, the shedding of the blood, and then the blood being the covering so that there could be that deliverance. Now, why were the Hebrews in Egypt in the first place? Well, hopefully you remember from John's series in Genesis that Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers, sold to a caravan heading to Egypt, and eventually Joseph found himself as a prisoner, and yet God was with him and overruled, gave him ability to interpret these dreams, and eventually he became prime minister of Egypt. And in that position, the Lord gave him wisdom and authority to lead during a time of very severe famine, so much so that in a remarkable providence, those brothers that had been so much against him would then be at his mercy. And then following that wonderful reconciliation, that coming together, and with Pharaoh's gift of land, the family would move down to Goshen to raise their livestock. And time went on and the children of Israel were fruitful, they multiplied, they grew mighty, and the land was filled with them. But the time came when one Pharaoh did not know Joseph, was jealous of these foreigners and feared them. And so he decided to subject them to slavery. And he put them into these appalling labor camps, used them to undertake vast building projects, but even still... Despite their bondage, the Israelites continued to grow strong and resolute. And after 400 years or so, God decreed that it was time for them to be brought out of bondage, out of Egypt, to a land which he had promised to give. And of course, Pharaoh would not let them go. 
And so the Lord moved against Pharaoh and Egypt by sending a series of dreadful plagues, each one designed to attack a particular false idol. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let the people go. And so there was this final plague, the death of the firstborn, and this would be the one that would cause Pharaoh to relent. And God sent an angel of death to kill the firstborn in, in every house. It was a devastating judgment. But for the Hebrews to be spared this plague, God instructed them to take this lamb without spot, without blemish, and as we have heard, following a time to kill it as a sacrifice to the Lord and to put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels. And then when death passed over, when the angel of death saw the blood, he would pass over. And so the lamb's life would be the price to purchase the deliverance, to purchase the deliverance of the life of the firstborn. The lamb would be the substitute. The lamb would pay the price to redeem the firstborn. Now, friends, just imagine at this time having to find an unblemished, spotless lamb the desperate need to get hold of one in order that the cherished firstborn could be delivered. The need for a lamb that God would accept to make sure everything was right and they had the blood on the, the posts and the lintel. And the father would take the hyssop and dip it in the blood and make the marks. The blood shed for the redemption of the firstborn. And again, imagine... As the evening came on that first Passover, imagine the anxious wait, everything in place. And then the judgment came, and throughout Egypt you could hear the, the terrible streams of death and crying. And this saw the change, and the Hebrews were granted their departure. And so this became the symbol of deliverance by death, substitutionary redemption. And so as they look back to the Exodus, they would see that it was based on redemption through the death of a substitute by the blood of a lamb. And the Passover was to be kept every year to remind Israel of the great deliverance through the blood and to point to the true lamb that was to come. God's own provision, the ultimate lamb who would redeem his own through his death and the shedding of his blood. And this is in Peter's mind. And as great as that redemption was in, in Egypt and the Exodus and the bringing out of the people, it was only a shadow of the greater redemption that would be accomplished by Christ, God's Lamb. And Peter, as he thinks on these things, he then brings it to bear and he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And it's so important that you see that as Peter writes these things, he's writing, as we've seen time and time again, to these persecuted believers. He's encouraging them, he's exhorting them to stand strong, to remember the greatness of their salvation in Christ, their inheritance to come. And we saw last Lord's Day evening that in the light of that, he then encourages and challenges and commands the believer that these things should show themselves in the way that we live. And so there's a, a proper response to this amazing grace. And uh, we said, didn't we, that we should live with that hope fixed on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ, verses 13 to 14 of 1 Peter 1. We owe it to the Lord to trust him, to hope in him, 
We also said that in the light of such great salvation, we should pursue that holiness. As we have been called by the Holy One, we are to live holy. And also that we are to honour God. We are to remember the one who has delivered us, to approach him with that right fear and awe and reverence. And so we are to live like that in this world, ever keeping our Lord in view. And then in verse 18, as he has brought these things about and challenged the responsibility, he comes back again to the glory of the gospel. And it's, it's as if he's so eager to impress upon us the great wonder of it that he then comes to talk about being redeemed, the great cost that we are to live in hope, we are to live in holiness, we are to honour the Lord because of the cost of our salvation. And so you have said, he says, you have been redeemed. You have been set free. The ransom has been paid. The price has been paid. And it's the blood of Christ. And as he does so, there are a number of things that we need to look at. And I want to ask this question, what are we redeemed from? You know, we need to understand that. If we're saved tonight, if we have been redeemed, what are we redeemed from? Well, it's clear from the verse that we have been redeemed from a form of bondage. And that is bondage to sin. Outside of Christ, we know that we are born in sin, our fallen nature, we are slaves to sin. And in this passage in 1 Peter 1, Peter alludes to a number of characteristic of what man is like in his sin. You say, well, where are they? Well, let me show you. Verse 14 of 1 Peter 1, he says that the believer is not to be conformed to former lusts. And so by implication, that says that the unbeliever is bound to those worldly former lusts. And it tells us that before being saved, the believer, like all people, were given to sinful lust. And so when a person is in bondage to sin, it is shown in the, the strong desires in the heart to do what is sinful in the sight of a holy God. And you see that throughout Scripture of how these things are conceived in the mind and fire the heart, these strong and illicit desires which reflect the bondage of sin. And Peter says we, we cannot deliver ourselves from that. We are trapped in that. We are dominated by that in our fallen state. So we were in bondage to sin and in this lust. And then also in verse 14, he says that we were in ignorance before we were saved. As in your ignorance, verse 14. You know, those who are outside of Christ, those who are still fast bound in sin and nature's night are bound in ignorance. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, spiritual ignorance. You see, the Lord Jesus explains something of this in John 17 in that wonderful prayer that he prays. And he says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. And so the unredeemed, they are in bondage because they don't know God. They're ignorant of God and of his revelation. They don't know God. They don't know his word. They won't acknowledge that God exists. They live with no reference to him. And Romans 1 tells us that God gives them over to a depraved mind. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 
And so man in his sin, a natural man, cannot discern the things of God. They cannot know God. Their mind is depraved. That's the nature of their bondage and there's no escape. They can't switch it off and come out of that. They are trapped and bound to that. In Ephesians, in chapter 2, Paul speaks of those who are in bondage to sin as being without God in the world. They have no relationship with him. They have no knowledge of him. Paul says that the unbeliever is dead in trespasses and sins and a spiritually dead man cannot respond to spiritual things. He says in Ephesians 4.18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And so there is that hard-hearted unbelief which shows itself in ignorance and, and blindness to the reality of God and the gospel and spiritual things. And then in verse 18, also you have this element of being bound in sin, trapped in lust and ignorance, and also futility. And he says that the believer has been delivered from aimless conduct, literally from your old, empty, futile life. Friends, we were made to live for the glory of God. And outside of Christ, you can't do that. So life outside of Christ is empty, it is vain, it is pointless. You think of Mark 8. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You know, Paul makes the same appeal as he preaches the gospel in Acts 14. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Think of Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, as a, a slave to sin, life is futile in, in thinking, in acting, in every way. The futility is the way it is even in creation because of the fall. Think of Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul quotes Psalm 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. In other words, they've got no redeeming value. And so bondage to sin, it lacks reference to God, no capacity to glorify God. It is marked by lust and ignorance and futility. And also in this passage, he says, Peter, that it's also in that bondage to sin, we are trapped in empty tradition, aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. In simple terms, it's the baggage that hinders any true engagement with God. And that could be empty religion, it could be the tradition of paganism, it could even be the, the culture of atheism. You know, of course, Peter is in the first instance thinking of his own culture. And he considers the kind of Judaism that knew not God that was characteristic of the Pharisees. The type that Jesus identifies in Matthew 15:9 when he says, And in vain they worship me teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. And he says later in Matthew 23 that these false leaders bind heavy burdens upon the people and don't lift a, a finger to help them to carry this impossible man-made load that they're given. So much man-made tradition 
not wanting to violate tradition, and yet it's got no eternal value. And it's true in other spheres, whether it's various religions or other worldviews, it has a binding effect. And people are captive to such things and they need to be set free. What did Jesus say? The truth shall set you free. And Peter understands that the, the ruin that has been brought by sin in nature indeed and the condition of someone unredeemed, it is totally engulfing. They are in total bondage. At enmity with God, they are in rebellion against him. They are ruined by the fall. And unless a person is redeemed, then they will face eternity in that condition in the judgment of hell. And the Bible says that the condition of the person in bondage to sin, it is desperate. It is so desperate. Their tongue is deceitful, poisonous lips, throats an open grave, eyes full of lust, ears deaf to the voice of God and to the truth, hands to do evil, mind depraved, heart desperately wicked, unrepentant, resisting God. Utter darkness, unable to comprehend the light. And worse, content to remain like that. And we see it all around us, friends. People content in the darkness, bound in sin. And yet if you're a believer, this is what you have been redeemed from. This is what you have been set free from. God's gracious redeeming work in Christ applied to us breaks the chains that bind us to the past and sin and those which bind us to future condemnation. Christ sets us at liberty. And in contrast with the ruin that is faced by the unbeliever, the true Christian is given faith and hope in the Lord. And that should make us so thankful when we consider the state of the one who is trapped in sin and yet the deliverance we have been given. And it should inspire us to hope in the Lord and to live holy and to honor the Lord. That's what we've been redeemed from. And then lastly tonight, what have we been redeemed with? So we know what we've been redeemed from, but what have we been redeemed with? Verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. He begins by ruling out what we've not been redeemed with. And the word knowing is talking about just a, a, an entry-level knowledge. This is the very basic stuff. There's no mystery here. It is clear. The price that was paid for our redemption wasn't with anything perishable or corruptible. It wasn't an earthly commodity like silver or gold. They say, well, why does he emphasize that? What is he trying to say? Well, I'd like you to turn, if you will, to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, and we'll see again something of the significance here. And uh, in that Old Testament passage, which maybe you're turning to, you see that there is a redemption by a metal commodity. So God is giving instruction to Moses, and he says to him, Exodus 30 and verses 12 to 14, he says, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Now, just to be very clear on something, God does not command him to take a census. Only that it will happen, and when it does happen, 
Each one needs to give a ransom for himself to the Lord, or they will face a plague. And then it goes on, uh, verses 14 onwards. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You say, well, why would God send a plague for taking a census? Well, in scriptures, it seems that taking a census on the part of Israel was to show a lack of trust in the power of God. And so David himself got into great difficulty when he numbered the people to see if he was strong enough to face his enemies rather than trusting the strength of God. And it's the same principle here. Taking a census to see how large the nation was or how strong they were in the military or some other reason to boast was wrong. And so the people involved in it had to be redeemed from that sin by a price. And the price was half a shekel. As one Jewish commentator says, the taking of a census was considered to be a lack of faith in God. So it had to have a cleansing feature. By doing this, the Israelites would be delivered from the punishment that was liable to be inflicted on them on account of the sin implicit in the census. Now, this imagery is in Peter's thinking when he talks about not being able to be redeemed with perishable things. And he says, yes, in the Old Testament, there were times when there was redemption secured by earthly commodities, but you, believer, were not redeemed like that. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like half a shekel or silver or gold because nothing material could ever deliver the eternal souls of people from the bondage of sin. Psalm 49, no doubt, was in his mind as well. None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of their souls is costly. There is no human commodity that can pay this price. Half a shekel might well have redeemed from the sin of a census, but it could not redeem the soul of the sinner from the bondage of sin. You think of Isaiah 52. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. It's an amazing prophecy concerning what the Lord Jesus was coming to do to redeem without money because corruptible things cannot do it. No one can pay the price to redeem his soul from death. Only God can redeem his people. And what Peter is doing and emphasizing is stressing the costliness of the ransom because God has paid the price in the life of Christ offered up for us. And so Peter elevates the work of Christ to show that we were bought with a price, that our salvation was costly. And so surely, what other motivation do we need to live holy? And verse 19, what is it? But with the precious blood of Christ, 
as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Precious blood. There had to be a sacrificial death. There had to be the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And the picture of the Passover made it clear that the blood of the Lamb was so significant. And the blood of the Lamb was precious in the Passover because the Lamb was unblemished. It was spotless. It was not the blood of any Lamb. To, have, uh, to be a shepherd and to have a spotless and blemished lamb was so special and only such a lamb could be sacrificed and it would be a great sacrifice not just for the lamb but for the shepherd to offer. And the blood was precious because the lamb was precious. And Peter takes all of that imagery and he applies it to the blood of God's lamb, the Lord Jesus the ultimate substitute, the one promise, God's own provision, the most unblemished and spotless person that ever lived, perfect, therefore most costly, most valuable, most precious. Our Lord Jesus, he is the one who purchased our redemption by his death. His blood is most precious because he is most precious. Precious to the Father, precious to us. The blood that was shed is the blood of Jehovah Jesus. It is the blood of one who possesses all the worth, all the glory of the Godhead, all the virtue. And this sacrifice has the power to deliver. It has the power to redeem. And it can cleanse the precious blood spiritually, can in a moment dissolve the heavy burden and fill the soul with joy. His blood avails for me. And that is why there exists not one stain of human sin or guilt that the atoning blood of Jesus cannot utterly and forever deal with. His is the precious blood which cleanses from all sin. You know, maybe you're here tonight and maybe you think on your life. You think on things that have happened in your life, maybe things which you are holding great shame and you think on your sin and it convicts you. Your heart is cut and you realize that you're in that bondage of sin and you can't save yourself and you're hopeless and you're helpless and you're condemned. But here, friends, is the glory of the gospel that God has provided a way in which you can be delivered, in which you can be saved, in which your sin, not in part but the whole, can be dealt with, nailed to the cross, washed in that precious blood. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were still sinners, he shed his blood for us. We were so far off, and yet it is the blood of Christ that brings us near. There is hope for you, dear sinner, and it is found only in repenting of your sin and coming to Jesus Christ. Behold, Peter says, look to him. Look to this one who redeemed us, the preciousness of his blood. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the blood which cleanses those who believe from all sin. Or oh, would you not run to him this night? And if we are believers as we finish, let us not be those who do not treasure this precious blood and more the Lamb who shed it. Rather, let us join even now with the very song of heaven, the song of eternity for all of the redeemed, unto him that loved us 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do we appreciate what we have been redeemed from? Are we full of praise for our Savior who stood in, who came, who was our substitute, the Lamb of God? Do we thank God for that redemption that he has given to us, that we have been bought, that we have been brought out, that the price has been paid? Or do we take it for granted, treat it so lightly? Or may it not be, we are redeemed. Redeemed if we're in Christ. And what an incredible gift of grace to unworthy sinners. And Peter says, see the preciousness of it. See the preciousness of it, dwell upon it, let it fill your heart and mind, and then live in the light of it. And live for the glory and honour of your Saviour who has done all for you. And I pray that my own heart, and I pray that our hearts together might be raised in thankfulness and praise and adoration, and that we would desire above all to live to the glory and exaltation of our Saviour. And more than that, friends, that we would have that longing to be with him. Because one day we will see him. And we will see this one who went to the cross for us. We will see this lamb who shed his blood for us. And we will bow in worship. And what a day that will be. Do you not long for it, friends? Do you not long to see him? May it be that we are there together in adoration and praise of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Precious he is. Amen.